the the world that we live in is is a world of enormous contrasts i think you'd agree you might go out for a stroll in the countryside and there's peace and beauty all around you and yet in many parts of the world if you went for a walk you might be in an inner city and see ugliness and deprivation and you might be worried for your life that you might be attacked um, it's it's a world of huge contrast um, I've just put, put a few pictures on the screen which uh, sort of highlight that beauty and ugliness and as we know although I, th I guess all of us live in relative comfort and peace a great many people live in very difficult and harrowing circumstances as I say of great deprivation so life can be enjoyable peaceful fulfilling but it can also be marred by war and crime and violence and exploitation and, and we might ask why is this why is the world like this and we have to recognize if we're honest that it's largely the result of us human beings human selfishness and greed and wickedness and the Bible classifies those as sin Sin's an old-fashioned word, isn't it? Um, it's not used much these days. Um, sociologists who describe the way that society works, I don't think they ever use the word sin because that implies moral responsibility. Uh, and um, so if, if they're describing um, difficult circumstances, places where people kill or... Um, commit violence and crime then it's because they've been deprived and they haven't had a, you know, the benefits of a good upbringing and so on uh, no responsibility of themselves well the Bible is very clear in laying the blame squarely on human nature we are all implicated hopefully none of us does those things that we've just described but most of us are in some way and at some time selfish we want our own way rather than the way which might help someone else and if we're honest we we recognize those weaknesses within ourselves and God the the great creator who is the author of the Bible through his apostles and prophets who wrote down his words for us God has established laws which are designed to help people live happy and successful lives but people don't like living by laws they don't like anyone telling them what to do it's the old story about you know if the sign says wet paint we touch it to see whether it's wet or not um, we are curious people we are people who have a natural tendency to go our own way or do our own thing and so God's laws are not always 
the things which are uppermost in our minds, in our daily lives. Now God's laws, his commandments, are summarised in the Bible. Jesus set them out for us, um, and uh, they're, they're in the Old Testament law as well. Uh, the first of all commandments, said Jesus, was that we should love God, love our maker. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind or strength. Uh, I'm using the, the New King James Version this afternoon, by the way. So, how do we love God? Do we love God? Is it possible to love a being that you cannot see? So many people in, in the world that we live in today don't even acknowledge that there is a God. Or if they think there is a God, then he's someone remote and he doesn't have anything to do with us. Which is certainly not the God of the Bible. The second commandment says the law and says Jesus is that you shall love your neighbour as yourself. You shall show the same concern and love for the people around you as you show to the creator who made you. And I suppose all of us find it easy to love our family, although even in the best family there are sometimes arguments and disputes. Um, but generally we, we lo love our families, and we may love a few people outside of that, but to love anyone that we come into contact with, anyone that we could help, that's not something that perhaps we naturally do. So God, God has given these laws and he looks to men and women, people like us, to respond to them. We were talking uh, this morning about God's love for mankind shown through the Lord Jesus and the fact that God asks us to love him in return because love is not something you can compel. It's no longer love. So what does God want from us? Well, these words, what does the Lord your God require of you but to love him, there it is again, and to keep the commandments of the Lord, which I command you today, now this is interesting, isn't it, for your good. Now, very often we feel that commandments are things that restrict us from doing what we want you know particularly when your children or young people and your parents say no you're not to do that and you think oh, I want to my friends are doing it why shouldn't I do it so we feel that commandments are things we don't like they they stop us doing what we want to do and many people regard law in that way particularly God's law but it's that for your good your parent says, no, it, I don't want you to do that because it's not good for you. It might take you somewhere where you shouldn't be or with people you shouldn't be with. And it's not always easy to recognise that God's commandments, is, which are in, in the Bible, for instance, for the, the commandments God gave to Israel, 
set out in the Ten Commandments. And those, those commandments are good. They are about loving and honouring God and about looking after, loving our neighbour, doing things for other people rather than for ourselves. And they are for our good. They are beneficial to our lives. And apart from that, they bear the hope, eventually, of salvation and eternal life in the kingdom of God. Jesus, in very similar vein, said, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. Now, in our world, the idea of love, it's become very sentimentalised, hasn't it? You know, all the love songs and pop songs about love. But love, certainly in the Bible, is about self-sacrifice. Doing things for other people which cost you something. And not simply pleasing yourself. We live in a world where you are taught to please yourself. You've got to be self-assertive to get on. You know, to do well in school or college or uh, in industry, business, whatever career you're in. You've got to push yourself forward and make sure you, you do what you want to do. But the Bible teaches a wholly different way. It's about seeking how you can help other people and putting them first. And that's not natural. It's not how we naturally feel. It's something we have to teach ourselves that it's the right way. Perhaps you'd like to look with me at uh, Paul's letter to the Romans and chapter 3. Because this describes the, the consequences of ignoring God's law, of breaking his commandments. What we've called, or what the Bible calls, sin. And there's a very good definition of sin in the first letter of John. Sin is the transgression of the law. It means breaking God's law, of course. Breaking God's law, it's, that's what sin is. And... Um, in Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul takes a whole group of quotations from the Old Testament scriptures to show what men are naturally like. Uh, verse 9, he's, he's talking about the, actually the relationship between Jews and Gentiles or Greeks. What then? Are we, he means we Jews, better than they, Gentiles? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Gentiles, Greeks, that they are all under sin. So that's everyone. Everyone sins. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks after God. It's a pretty depressing assessment of the human condition isn't it they have all turned aside they have be together become unprofitable there is none who does good no not one and, and so on verse 17 the way of peace they have not known 
There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's a pretty accurate description of much of the society that we live in today. It didn't used to be like this. And in my youth, most people had honoured God in some way. Most people went to church, whether their um, religion was strictly according to the scripture or not they had a, a, a reverence for God but it's not like that today most people don't even know what, what anything about God or, or his word the Bible so that's how men can become without God and so all have sinned says Paul in that verse 23 there all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And we don't have time to go back you know, through the whole uh, Bible teaching about um, the origin of sin and, and its consequences, but the person who sins will die. That's from the Garden of Eden, from the fall of man, when man first broke God's commandment in the Garden of Eden. The soul who sins shall die. Now here's an interesting quotation from the book of Proverbs. Fools mock at sin. That's the way sin is treated today. If you, if you hear somebody talking on television about sin, it's a joke. It's, it's made a joke. If you do something, you do this or you do that. And the idea of sin, oh, that's a, an old-fashioned word. When um, street preachers used to go around with a board saying, you know, uh, the wages of sin is death. And people laugh at that sort of thing. Fools. That, that's how the Bible describes people who have that attitude. Fools mock at sin. And, um, of course, if you just turn over to Romans chapter 6 and the very last verse Paul says the wages of sin is death and death in scriptural terms is a complete cease, cessation of existence the, the mind ceases, the body ceases they're laid in the ground and they corrupt and turn to dust. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's what we want to think about, how that can come. So in the, in, in the world in which we live, we see the consequences of sin. And in the society around us, all of these things result from individuals who break God's commandments and sin. And, um, well, when you turn on the news, that's what he tells us about, isn't it? I know it's been Brexit pretty well 90% of the time for the last few, well, last few years, but... Um, when, when they've done the bit about Brexit, it's about these things that happen in the world around us. Uh, and uh, very, very rarely you get a little bit of good news. 
The good news is usually something to do with um, a, tr a treatment on the health service which will enable you to live um, another year or so, <laughs> Take, you know, solve one of our um, uh, health problems. But there's not much good news, is it? That's what we get talked, uh, get presented to us most of the time. Now, of course, men can do all these things, men and women, I should say, because they have free will. God has given us freedom of choice. We can obey his commandments or we can disobey. He doesn't compel us to keep his commandments, clearly. And most people don't, don't even want to keep his commandments. Which uh, brings about this, the state of the world that, that is described on the screen. And so much of human suffering and misery is the result of this separation from God, from the Creator. And it brings about the sentence of death. If you look at chapter 5 of Romans, Paul, Paul's letter to the Romans is, is very much concerned with discussing these issues. Chapter 5 and verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man... That's Adam, of course. Sin entered into the world and death through sin because God said, in the day you eat of that tree, you will die. And thus death spread to all men because all sin. Adam's sin brought about mortality so that all of Adam's descendants die. But we can't say, well, that's not fair. We're dying because of Adam's sin because we all sin. We're all implicit in the same um, penalty. All men sin and we have all sin. So in the face of this situation, what could God do to sort things out? It seems to me, well I can think of at least three things, no doubt you might think of others, but just to, to sort of give us something to think about, how could God deal with this problem that the men and women he has created and invited to love him, in the main, ignore him and break his laws? Well, some people think that God just ignores sin and that in the end it'll all turn out all right. Everyone will be saved. And you say, well, Hitler, is, is he going to be saved? Ah, well, perhaps there are some exceptions. Um, you know, there are people who are just so evil that you could imagine that they would be saved and given eternal life. But in various ways, a lot of people think uh, that that's the answer, that God is so kind and forgiving that, you know, he's just sort of, benign uncle who um, spoils all his grandchildren or his nephews and nieces well another solution God could have taken was to destroy the human race and of course he, he very nearly did that four or five thousand years ago when he sent the great flood because things had become so bad that he could not allow it to continue and he just chose one family who were godly, who did 
seek to keep his commandments to preserve the human race. But he could still destroy all flesh if he, if he chose to. But clearly he, he promised that he would never again send a flood to destroy the earth. But we know that the Bible teaches that there are, are judgments to come for wayward mankind. But what God actually did, as the Bible describes it, was to provide a way in which he could forgive the sins of men and women and reconcile them to himself on the basis of his mercy. And that's, that's a wonderful thing, you see. If God just get, forgave everyone, then he would no longer be upholding his righteousness. He would have given his commandments as a waste of time because nobody kept them and, and he would in effect be saying, oh, well, it, it doesn't matter if you don't keep my commandments. I'll give you eternal life anyway. And clearly that's not right. But this way, God could forgive men if they loved him and did their best to serve him. And if they believed in sacrifice, the sacrifice that God provided. And that's where, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ comes in. So this is termed conditional salvation. Salvation on conditions. If, that word if, if you keep my commandments, if you love me, then I will forgive your transgressions and I will grant you life. So God's solution then involved the, the providing of a sacrifice which could take away the sins of men. And uh, in that reading that we had in John chapter 3, perhaps you'd turn there with me, we have this one of the perhaps best known verses in the Bible. It, it, I remember in my youth, again, it used to be on wayside pulpits outside churches. God so loved the world. You don't s hardly ever see those now um, because most people don't have any interest. Uh, John chapter 3 Verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, we don't have time to, to go back and examine the origin of that um, comment, Moses lifting up a serpent. But in the wilderness, the children of Israel, God's chosen people, rebelled against him. And serpents came in amongst the people and, and bit many people and they died and Moses was commanded to make a model of a serpent and put it on a pole so that people could come and look at it and, and be spared that penalty which is a wonderful sort of figurative picture of what was going to happen when God provided the Lord Jesus Christ and he was sacrificed by being lifted up wasn't he so the amazing thing about crucifixion, it's the only sort of form of death, putting to death, where you, you're upright, mostly when people die, they're horizontal on the ground. But when you, when you were crucified, that terrible 
form of execution that the Romans used. You died up there where everyone could see you. So just like Moses' serpent on a pole in the wilderness, Jesus was lifted up that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is the extent of the love of God that he provided his son out of all the human race he provided a son who was of the human race and yet specifically his descendant his son and uh, John in his letter says if we confess our sins God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness so there is the forgiveness that God is prepared to offer to those who recognise their sinfulness and seek his way of escaping the penalty of them. And that, of course, was through the sacrifice of Jesus. The letter to the Hebrews says, This man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Now, the, that passage is contrasting the situation with God's people in the Old Testament, the children of Israel. God provided a, a temporary way of forgiveness for them by offering the sacrifice of animals. So when a man had committed a sin, he had to confess, to recognise his sin, and go to the tabernacle in the wilderness or, or the temple when Israel were in the land, and go to the priest and ask him to offer a sacrifice so that his sin could be forgiven. And various uh, specific sacrifices were specified for certain people. And, and the Bible says that the man's sacrifice was offered by the priest and God gave, forgave his sin. Trouble is, the next day he might do the same sin again or another sin. Because like us, all men sin. That's the message we have. And so he had to go and offer another sacrifice. And so there's this constant, th these sacrifices allowed sin to be forgiven temporarily but they didn't take away sin they didn't solve the problem of sin and that in fact all of them were sort of foreshadowing the true sacrifice which would take away all sins forever that is all sins of those who confess and seek God forever which would be through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ the one who would live a perfect life and lay down his life now of course Jesus died on the cross but he rose from the dead and the Bible is very clear 
If Jesus had just died on the cross, that wouldn't have solved anything. Sins would not have been taken away simply by Jesus dying. But because Jesus was perfect in his every part of his life, he never gave in to the sins which the rest of the human race commit. Then God raised him from the dead. And so we have this statement that righteousness is imputed or counted to those who believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. It's, it's an interesting word, that imputed. It comes, goes right back to the example of Abraham, where we're told Abraham believed God and God imputed righteousness to him. He counted him as righteous. And so we are ra he raised him from the dead. So he was delivered up on the cross for our offences and raised again for our justification. That means so that we could be counted righteous. Both the death and the resurrection of Jesus were essential. This is the solution that God provided for his people. And so Jesus became a complete and perfect sacrifice. You come with me to the wonderful chapter in the Old Testament, the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, which describes the way in which Jesus became the sacrifice for sins. Isaiah chapter 53. And of course, this, this is a prophecy of what Jesus would accomplish when he came. Verse 3. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. So it's quite clear he wasn't dying because of anything he had done he was dying for us if we believe in him the chastisement for our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed all we like sheep have gone astray we have turned every one to his own way that's that's what we were thinking about we always or so, so naturally we do what we want to do we turn everyone to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of, his, of us all he was oppressed he was afflicted yet he opened not his mouth he is led as a lamb to the slaughter as a sheep before its shearers is dumb so he opened not his mouth now you might think this was pretty hard on Jesus, really. He did nothing wrong 
and yet he had to die on a cross. It's um, an amazing thing that Jesus was prepared to do this for you and me. And and that sets this pattern of self-sacrifice that I talked about. This is true love, isn't it? Laying down your life for someone else. And Jesus laid down his life for all of us. And so if we believe that Jesus did this for us, then God is pleased to forgive us. But it's God's free gift. It's not that we do anything which makes God forgive us. That It's God's grace, that's, that's the word, grace, which means the free gift of God. It's not paying a debt, as some people teach. And, and Jesus didn't die instead of us. If he died instead of us, then we wouldn't have to die, and we, we still die. But he, di- he died as our representative, as a picture of what we should be like. Now, of course, we, we don't go around dying for people, but it might happen, you know. We are to lay down our lives by helping other people, doing what will please them and help them in the way of life. And so Paul says, by grace you have been saved, through faith, through believing in Jesus. It is the gift of God. Now it's also important to notice that Jesus was truly a man. He was born of a woman. He shared our nature. So Jesus had the same urges within him to do his own thing. Not everyone believes that, but that's what the Bible teaches. But unlike us, he did not give in to those urges. He was strong because he was the Son of God as well as the Son of Man. Um, The letter to the Hebrews says, as the children, that's us, our flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise shared in the same. But by completely conquering sin, never giving in to his own desires, his sinless life became a perfect sacrifice for the sins that we commit. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as a sin offering he condemned sin in the flesh. It's it's in the flesh, that's in our human nature that we sin and Jesus shared that nature and did not sin and so he conquered it. So the forgiveness of sins then is made available to all of us by God as his free gift by faith in the Lord Jesus and as we read in John chapter 3 and and here in Acts it requires us to recognise our sinfulness and repent of it and to be baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ so that our sins can be 
forgiven, remitted, washed away. There's a, there's a wonderful verse from the Psalms which anticipates that. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. So what must we do then? How do we become the beneficiaries of Jesus as God's remedy for sin? Just in, to sum up what, we, what we've seen, we have to recognise that God is the supreme, all-righteous creator. He has established this world. He has set its laws, which, remember, are for our good, if we keep them. And we have to recognise that all too often we do not keep them. We do our own thing. And so we are required to recognise that, to repent, and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That word believe and the word faith in the Bible are just the same word. To have faith in Jesus Christ. We have to be baptised as the outward symbol of that inward change in our hearts that we wish truly to serve God and the Lord Jesus. And then to live by his commandments. Jesus, remember I put up on the screen that Jesus says, he that keeps my commandments is he who loves me. We show our love for Jesus by, to the very best of our ability, living by his commandments. And we believe the promise that he is going to come again. And so we, we live waiting for his return from heaven. And so God's remedy then for human sin is what is described as his grace, his goodness, his free gift of forgiveness to those who love him, who seek him and believe in the Lord Jesus. These letter, words of Paul from Romans as sin reigned unto death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we long for that time when the Lord Jesus will come. And if we have, while we have opportunity now in this life, turned to him and given our lives to him, through baptism and, to, and faith in him, then God will forgive our sins and grant us the blessing of eternal life in the day that Jesus comes again.